Let me begin this morning by sharing the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do my command, and this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Today is a historic day in the life of the church um, as we remember the last week of Jesus' life on earth. It's an event so transforming in history that history was forever changed in this one week. It's, it's the reason, actually, that we gather today. It's the reason that we gather every Sunday and every time that we gather. It's the story of new life, of, of love laid down, as love laid down as a friend for us. And that friend, of course, is Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord, we come here to worship Christ, our King, Christ, our Savior. Lord, we ask that you would help us to set aside our worries of today and our, and our cares for tomorrow and fully focus on you in these moments. Lord, let our hearts dwell in the holy. It's in Christ, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Today we're going to continue our series titled Paradise Lost and Paradise Restored. And our journey begins this morning, as some of you probably expect, with Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Jesus rode into Jerusalem in a state of humility on a colt. And Jesus rides into our lives victoriously. And these two things, victory and humility, kind of stand in contrast, but victory and humility, that's the story of Palm Sunday, but it's also the story of the cross. And so today as we dive into this, the, a little bit into Genesis and into the Gospels and look at what it means to be restored to the Garden of God from the original garden, we're going to look at um, Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday and where that takes us in the garden. Let's take a moment to be in prayer. Holy God, as Jesus entered humbly into Jerusalem, we humbly come before you. We ask that you would speak into our hearts and lives this day. It's in Christ, your Son, and our Savior's name that we pray. Amen. Well, today is, is known both as Palm Sunday and as Passion Sunday, because today we remember Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem at the Passover festival and celebration, and crowds gathered and welcomed him as the king, waving palm branches in the air. Um, and we reflect on that. And they, they waved them in the air and welcomed him as king. But we, we reflect also on this week ahead, this, this holy week, as, we, as the church folk call it, holy week. You know, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. The week leading up to Easter, this last week of Jesus' life. I invite you to listen to how uh, the author of John describes Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. It goes like this. He says, The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of, of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hail to the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, 
fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem leaves us with two competing images. The first is this kingly image of Jesus. It's, it's kingly because the waving of palm branches in the first century was a sign of, was sign of victory. It was a symbol of victory, an image of victory. But riding on a donkey's colt, a young donkey, that was an image of humility. It was a far cry, it was a far cry from riding in on a war horse. You know, the Old Testament prophets, they, they talked about how the Messiah, the coming king, was going, to, was going to ride into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate. And so Jesus pairs together these two images, one of, one of humility as he rides in on his colt, and one of victory as people cheered in this procession with palms waving in the air. And so right away we see in this story and we know that God is planning to do something very unique, something very unique in this way of, of delivering his people. And the people were cheering for it. Cries of Hosanna. Hosanna. Praise be to God. They roared above the crowds. God is going to save his people. Yet, that, that salvation wasn't going to come through the force that people expected. They expected this forceful king that was going to come and take over, that was going to lead them to victory, because that's what they, that's what they expected. That's how you come to power, through force and brutality. You take control. That's how you do it. But God had another plan, and it involved something different. It involved grace, it involved love, and it involved mercy and humility. Five days later, five days later, those shouts of Hosanna, they were gone. And, and silence, silence fell over everything as Jesus breathed his last, and he laid down his life on the cross. Redemption came through the greatest act of sacrificial love that the world had ever seen. And in order to, to appreciate how Christ's work on the cross, and how it worked and what it really means and how it saves us, we, we really have to go back to the beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, the Bible is bookend with, bookended with gardens. Uh, God created, in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. We read about that in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Revelation 22, John tells us about heaven and the king's garden, and he talks about the tree of life. And in between those two gardens, we find the story of Jesus as he suffers and dies and is raised from the dead, and all of which takes place also in a garden. You see, Genesis 2, Genesis 2 tells us about how God creates humankind, right? You're made in the image of God, um, breathed into them the life, the breath of God. And then in Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve in the king's garden takes a quick turn. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1. We'll pick up the story. 
which starts like this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Here's the point this morning. Half-truths are more dangerous than a lie. Half-truths are more dangerous than a lie. It is important to recognize just how dangerous half-truths really are. Let's be honest. If we're paying attention, we don't really struggle with outright lies. But half-truths, or even an an embellished truth, now, now that's something that often gets us into trouble. And it's this weakness in our nature that the serpent preyed upon. You see, the serpent asked Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any fruit in the garden? Any of the trees, the fruit of any trees in the garden. And just like that, the seed of defiance was sown through a half-truth. God didn't say Adam and Eve couldn't eat from any tree. He said they couldn't eat from one specific tree. This teeny tiny little half-truth and was given. And, this, the, and, and the clarity of obedience, the clarity of obedience was clouded. And so I want you to listen to Eve's response one more time. She said, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, or you will, and if you do, you will die. Notice in this text, notice she quotes God's instruction to the serpent, right? She's like, this is what God said. This is what God said. But what she tells the serpent is not what God said. You ever notice that? In all actuality, Adam is the one who receives the instruction in Genesis 2. And if we go back to Genesis 2.16, this is what the instructions were in the garden originally. Genesis 2.16 and 17 say this, But the Lord warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this, its fruit, you are sure to die. Do you see anything different here? God told Adam not to eat the fruit, not that he couldn't touch it. Apparently, at some point, and for some reason, Adam or Eve embellished God's instructions, embellished God's truth, adding to the instruction not to touch it. 
Why? Why? We could speculate countless reasons. We could ponder it. The, the why is not as important as what the story actually demonstrates about ourselves. You see, when we listen to half-truths or embellish God's truth, for whatever reason or rationale we may give it, things go badly. After Eve listened to the half-truth and embellishment, she goes to the tree and she sees the fruit and she eats it. She gives some to Adam, who was with her, and he eats it. And their sin was their act of disobedience. Adam and Eve didn't want to be children of God anymore. They wanted to be God. They wanted to rule their own lives. They wanted to rule their own lives. And in eating the fruit, their eyes were opened. They saw their brokenness. They saw their naked state. And they felt shame. And God comes and walks in the garden. And instead of walking with them, with him like they had in the past, they hid. What was beautiful was lost. What was pure and innocent was defiled and stained, and now they experienced something new. They experienced guilt. They experienced shame. You see, this story, their story, is our story. This is not merely a, a story of antiquity. It, it, it's, it's the story of our lives. We also hear these these voices of half-truths and embellishments of God's truth telling us that we, can, that we can be more, that we can do more, that we can experience more if we just take and eat. Just take it and do it. If we just do this one thing, we can have it all. How simple and easy it would be. But in reality, we, we can't buy happiness. Cutting corners never gets us ahead. And gossip never builds anyone. And we are all tempted to take and eat because we all hear the voice telling us that it's okay to do so. You see, the, the story of the fall of humankind, of, of paradise lost, is our story. Every time we give in to that temptation, every time we listen to that voice, something beautiful in us or, or around us in the world is lost. And it could, just, it could be innocence is lost, it could be relationship is lost, it could be our integrity is lost, it could be our honesty is lost. Even our physical or our emotional health can be lost. But something is lost when we start listening to the wrong voice. And we witness this in the world around us. We do it every day. We see it all around us. All you have to do is watch the news for five minutes to see any in any news broadcast in HD what Paradise Lost looks like in our world today. And yet, we still, particip we still participate. You see, we need to learn from Adam and Eve's mistake, to learn from their story, to learn from this story about how to listen to and follow the right voice, and, and that, of course, would be God's voice. Because every time we go off in the wrong direction, we become like Adam and Eve, walking out of God's garden instead of into it. 
So many of us long, we long to return to the garden. We long to go back. We long to get in. We dream of eternity in the kingdom of God. Longing for heaven. Longing for that connection. And yet we're willing and actively, and we are willing and we actively participate in its destruction in our day-to-day lives. We long for it, and yet we destroy it. We can glimpse it, but we can't redeem it. But, lucky for us, there is someone who can. There's someone who does. There's someone who is, and that someone is Christ. Last week, Pastor Rod spoke about the Garden of Gethsemane and how Jesus made a choice in that garden to take on the sin of the world on the cross. That Jesus was willing to, to, to bear God's wrath and bear God's judgment for our sins, from, from Adam's sins all the way to our sins. And this is how Paul says it in Romans 5. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You see, where Adam and Eve led us out of God's garden, Jesus' faithfulness leads us back in. He took up the cross and paid the price for our sin. And what's neat is that the Gospel of John, John paints a different picture of the crucifixion, and he says that the work of redemption actually takes place in a garden. He says the work of redemption takes place in a garden. In John 19.41, it says, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. Now, it was important for John to point out the connection between the work of redemption and the garden. You see, there is a full circle connection that takes place here. Everything started in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was crucified and buried in a tomb in a garden. The resurrection came, restoration came in a garden. Now, we often think of Calvary or Golgotha as as this dark and, and barren, barren wasteland outside of Jerusalem. You know, darkness and lightning balls, you know. Everything's in black and white. Yet John describes the site of the crucifixion as a garden. Now, there are two places today where people say and believe that the crucifixion took place. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the other is the Garden Tomb. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the walls of Jerusalem. And its story began in 325 A.D. when Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, traveled to the Holy Land, and she found this site where she believed that the crucifixion took place. And to honor that site, she built a church. And excavating the area, they found a tomb about 150 feet away, and they believed that to be Jesus' burial site, and so that also became part of the church. It's inside the city walls of Jerusalem. The second location was founded in the 19th century when scholars and archaeologists started to question the validity of the, um, of the church of the sepulchre and began to search outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And when they did that, they found a cliff face that looked like a skull. 
And they, rem they know, and as we know, Golgotha means place of the skull. And so they started digging to explore it. And when they did that, they found tombs that, with evidence that there was a garden that dated back to the first century. And they titled and they named the site the Garden Tomb. And from this location, we can see, uh, unlike the Church of the Sepulchre, we can see John's picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from a garden. Really, realistically, it really doesn't matter, honestly, if either location is where Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. It really doesn't matter at all. But what is important is that the work of Christ is what the work of Christ on the cross did for each of us. You see, through the cross, we're made one with God again. It's called the atonement. That's the theological term, the atonement. And it means the, we, we, we say atonement, um, and it literally means at one -ment. If you hyphenate it out, at one -ment. We're made one again with God. The atonement, to be at one with God. We are restored to right relationship with God again because of what Christ did on the cross. That's what's most important, not where it happened. So as we prepare this week, for this week before us, this, this week of Holy Week, and reflect upon what Jesus did, there are three important things I would ask you to remember. The first is that the cross really exposes the magnitude of our need. Last week, Pastor Rod talked about the cup that Jesus struggled to drink from, the anger and the wrath of God produced by sin. God loves us. God loves us. Never forget that God loves us. He loves us so much that he would send his one and only son to die for us. That the greatest act of love the world could ever see. What makes God angry is evil. God's anger is directed at the sin that binds us. That is what makes God angry. And God understands and knows that we cannot free ourselves from that bondage. On our own, we cannot make our way back to him. And so God let Jesus take the fall. He became our fall man. And the cross shows us just how much we truly need him. How much we need God to be our redeemer. The second thing I would ask you to remember is that the cross reveals just how much God loves us. You see, Jesus chose the cross. It was God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross. But Jesus, remember, had to choose to go to the cross. That was the trauma that he had in the garden. In John, 1 John 4.10 we read, This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Understand, this is not a tragedy. This is not a tragic story. It is a love story. It's a story of sacrifice. John Stott said in, the, in his book, the, the Cross of Christ, God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. The death of Jesus isn't what opens the door for God's love. The death of Jesus is the outpouring of God's love for us. It was God's love that led Jesus to the cross, so the cross reveals to us how much God loves us. End quote. The third thing we need to see in the cross 
is that Jesus dies for us. Jesus died for us. It was Jesus' death on the cross that redeems us and brings us back into right relationship. And in Ephesians, Paul says in 117, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Jesus paid the price of our sin, dying our death, so that we could be one with God. That's the atonement. See, through the cross, we find victory. Through Jesus' humility and love, we are saved. Victory and humility. Two competing images that paint a picture of Palm Sunday. Victory and humility. The message of God's work on the cross. Victory through humility. That's the message of our faith. We find victory as we humble ourselves before God. When we take our rightful place on bended knees before our Savior, the world will see through us God's promised land. And the king's gods, and the king's garden. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Let's pray. Holy God, we praise your name with shouts of Hosanna. God, you will save your people. As we enter the days to come and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, we we bow in humility to you. We are grateful for your mercy and for your grace that pours out on us. Give us the courage and the strength to hear through the voices of half-truths and to rest upon your truth each day. It's in Christ's name, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. Amen.